Hello and welcome to the Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark. This month we're discussing how and why humans excel, a new novel that paints a vivid portrait of modern Mexico, and we'll all be given a masterclass in how to become better listeners. David Epstein's exploration of sporting success, The Sports Gene, courted much controversy when it was published last year as it exploded the myths about how and why humans excel and challenged the popular 10,000-hour rule that states that rigorous practice from a young age is the only route to success. Shortlisted for the William Hill Sportsbook of the Year Award and out in paperback publication now, David joined us in the podcast studio to talk about his groundbreaking book. The Sports Gene was published in August 2013, and the Berlin Marathon was the next month. Here are the nationalities of the top five male finishers. Kenya, 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 Kenya. On the women's side, Kenyans went one, two, and four. In October, in the Chicago Marathon, Kenyan men finished first, second, third, fourth, eighth, and eleventh. Kenyan women took first and second. And one month after that, a Kenyan man and a Kenyan woman won their respective races at the New York City Marathon. But don't be deceived by the word Kenya. As if to put an exclamation point on chapters 12 and 13 of this book, every single one of those athletes was from the minority Kalenjin tribe. Source population, 5 million. That's the size of Costa Rica. Can you imagine if Costa Rican runners went 1 through 5 in a major marathon? In Kalenjin runners, we are witnessing the greatest overrepresentation of world-class athletic prowess that humanity has ever seen. Try this for perspective. As of this writing, 17 American men and 14 Brits in history have run a marathon faster than 2 hours and 10 minutes, or 4.58 per mile pace. 72 Kalenjin have done it this year. It is a testament to both the unique physiology and the training environment of the Kalenjin people, and also to a certain psyche exemplified by Dennis Cometto, who was not a particularly prominent name in the running world before he won the 2013 Chicago Marathon in a blistering course-record time. Upon crossing the line, the 29-year-old Cometto confessed that he was a running neophyte. Before 2010, he said, I was concentrating on farming and had never run before. I had literally never run before. I was farming maize and tending cows. When I visited Kenya for the reporting of this book, I marveled at the never-too-late mentality of Kalenjin runners, in addition to their slender bodies. Cometto began serious running only in his mid-twenties after a famous marathoner met him in a shopping center and invited him to train. I can't help but think how that meeting would have transpired had Cometto been living in the United States or Europe. Perhaps he would have considered it for a moment and smiled to himself at the fanciful thought of transforming from a farmer into a professional athlete, of raising his arms to break the finishing tape at a big city marathon and coming home to the rural Rift Valley, a hero with a six-figure payday. And then the daydream would break, and he would realize that it was too late. The time for that had passed. Too many others had too big a head start. That is, after all, the oft-spoken underbelly of strict 10,000-hours rule thinking, which says that only accumulated practice matters for achievement. If only practice matters and your competitors have logged far more practice hours than you, success is a lost cause. Thank goodness, then, that the rule hasn't made its way to the western Rift Valley province. A staple of the Kalenjin running phenomenon has been 20-something men and women beginning serious training for the first time on the assumption that, if they have sufficient talent, momentous motivation, and are willing to suffer through vigorous training, they can catch up to those who have logged many more hours. It is the never-too-late mentality that gave the sports world, and this book, the wonderful stories of athletes like high-jumper Donald Thomas and triathlete Chrissy Wellington. 
I mention this because the sports gene reached a broader audience than I ever considered possible. President Barack Obama was photographed picking up a copy on Small Business Saturday. The book's success emboldened me in my belief that readers want to understand cutting-edge science and are not afraid of complexity. It also meant that the ink was barely dry in the first printing when the implications of my critique of the 10,000 hours rule became a topic of mainstream news coverage. One of my staunchest critics was British journalist Matthew Syed, author of Bounce, a popular book about high performance that leans heavily on the 10,000 hours rule, also known as the 10-year rule, and seeks to minimize the importance of genes. When Syed and I were interviewed together on BBC Radio, he argued not with the science portrayed in my book, but rather with what he felt are the societal implications of acknowledging innate talents. Syed suggested that a social message that includes any notion of genetic talent would limit how people strive and would hinder them from reaching their potential. What would champions like Cometo, Thomas, and Wellington say about that? Wellington, who went pro at age 30 and whose entire career spanned five years from start to finish, became not only a great champion but a great philanthropist. We are lucky to have her. And this is the message she takes from her own success. We all have talents, and sometimes those talents are hidden and you have to dare to try something new, or you might not know what you're good at, she says. My hope, and indeed my belief, is that scientific research that expands on the genetics and physiology in this book will continue to help transform the simple luck that Thomas and Wellington experienced in finding the right fit sport into science-based systems that help more athletes be all that they can be. Problem of journalists misinterpreting the original 10,000 hours study, which was conducted on a small group of violinists, reached such a fever pitch by 2012, two decades after the original publication, that psychologist K. Anders Ericsson, who led the work, decided it was time to respond. In a letter linked on his faculty website titled, The Danger of Delegating Education to Journalists, he called the 10,000 hours rule invented. In a scientific journal article, he disparaged the public translation of his work by repeatedly referring to it as, quote, the popular internet version. In his letter, he attempted to clarify some misperceptions of the original 10,000 hours study. In fact, he wrote, 10,000 hours was the average of the best group of violinists by age 20. Indeed, most of the best violinists had accumulated substantially fewer hours of practice at age 20. This will come as a rude surprise to the soccer coach whose training plan I perused when I visited the Australian Institute of Sport last month for a conference. The plan budgeted exactly 10,000 hours of training for players by age 18. As I point out in Chapter 2, the very nature of that average from the original study obscures the individual variability that shows up in every study of skill acquisition. And recall that the original violin study included performers so highly pre-screened that they were already in a world-famous music academy. This is like restricting a study of basketball prowess to only NBA centers, noticing they had all practiced a lot, and therefore concluding that practice is the only reason they reached the NBA, not practice plus being seven feet tall. My greater concern with Syed's brand of criticism is that he seems to suggest that we should brush off science that doesn't comport with his preferred social message. Elevating research that supports a particular message while minimizing science that contradicts it may be well-intentioned, but it is misleading at best and harmful at worst. See Chapter 11 for an example of the latter. It seems to me quite presumptuous to think that we could choose the best social message without acknowledging the breadth of science anyway. Rather than prescribing a magical number or single path, understanding what innate differences between people are both real and important can facilitate the pursuit of the best outcomes for every individual. 
Chapter 2's tale of two high jumpers testifies to the fact that there is no single path to excellence, even among two men at essentially the same skill level in a rather straightforward sport. We should strive to gather more data on individual uniqueness, not embrace a mentality that compels us to hide from it. That mentality was exemplified one day during my reporting when the head of a kinesiology department at a major research university confessed to me that he was withholding data on the response of exercisers to a dietary supplement because he'd found differing responses between black and white subjects. He was concerned about the repercussions of publicly acknowledging absolutely any difference among subjects of different ethnicity. Whatever his intentions, the consequence, withholding data, means that the information is lost to the public and the rest of the scientific community. 10,000 hours thinking can also harm our youngest athletes by leading to inappropriate or unproductive hyper-specialization. So I expand on this uh, in the new afterward, but these are, these are topics that are treated uh, in great detail throughout the sports gene. Think of Mexico and most likely it will conjure up images of blazing sunshine, huge sombreros and shots of tequila. You probably won't be thinking about the bloody war the country is fighting against drug cartels, one which touches almost every family in Mexico. And even if you know about the devastating effects that this is having on an entire generation of young men, it's less likely that you know about the stolen women of Mexico. Jennifer Clements's powerful new novel, Prayers for the Stolen, is set to change this. She visited the UK recently from Mexico, and this interview was recorded at a literary salon here at Vintage Books. I mean, like, there's so many questions to ask you, but perhaps just to start with the fact that this book is about that relationship between mother and daughter, isn't it? I mean, that's where it starts, and it starts in a sort of almost equally kind of horrific way with Lady Dee's mother knocking her teeth out to make her less beautiful. Just sort of explain to us a little bit about them, where they live, who they are. Well, um, this is a state, it takes place in a state in Mexico called the state of Guerrero, which also has the famous port of Acapulco in that state. And it's a place where I've been to since my childhood, all my sort of sort of very important early memories. For example, I was in Acapulco when John F. Kennedy was killed. I was a tiny little child, but I remember because my parents were crying and it made, had such an effect on me. I was in Acapulco when Howard Hughes died at the Princess Hotel, and on and on and on. So um, it's a place that I know well, and so it was sort of natural that, that the book would take place there. And the woman who told me about this, these digging of these holes was from Guerrero, so it all just sort of came together. And in terms of the relationship between the mother and daughter, I mean, it's just a mystery. I don't know. Her voice came to me, this feisty, sensitive voice, and, and this mother who, I guess, I guess one of the things that really is so disturbing in Mexico is, is the loss of men. There are all these communities that don't have any men, and, and these women are in such pain. And there's a line in the book where the mother says, living without men is like sleeping without dreams. And so there's something just so painful about that. And so I, I think I kind of tapped into what I imagined, on one hand, the pain of, of losing her man, and then at the other side, this terrible anger, because many of the men that, that are, go to the United States, then they have second families and other children in the United States. And it's just a very painful situation. 
just tell us a bit about, I mean, what you mentioned before you started reading, which was the 10 years that you spent kind of building up all the mm-hmm. interviews. Tell us about the kind of start of this book. It, it perhaps didn't start life kind of as it's, as it's turned out. As yeah, this kind well, of novel. It, it started out about 10 years ago. I was watching, t- first of all, I had always sort of talked with the person who was um, the New York Times correspondent in Mexico, and we'd always had sort of this dream of doing a book t- together. And um, so one day I was watching television and they'd gathered up all these uh, drug traffickers and they'd put them in jail. And all these uh, women arrived at the jail to protest. And I was watching these women on TV and I just thought, God, who are these women? You know, they were just, they had these fabulous sunglasses on and really great nails. And, and I was like, here they're protesting at the jail. They want their men back, you know. And I just thought, this is such a fascinating moment, this, what I'm watching here. So I spoke to, to my friend at the New York Times and she said, yeah, let's, let's do a book on the women of drug traffickers. And so we started out, then unfortunately she left actually, she came to do a doctorate at Oxford and so she was only in Mexico for like another eight months. And we started out and I sort of ended up doing it alone really, it was interviewing women that were in hiding. In, in a sort of underground railroad that exists that's um, some organized by the government, other by sort of human rights organizations. So I did start just interviewing the women of drug traffickers and started to feel that Mexico was a kind of a rabbit warren of women hiding all over the place. And it was literally, you could go to a shop and behind the shop, there'd be 20 women hiding with their children, or in the basements. I went to this one convent where there were all these women hiding in the basement, and all the nuns were ancient because nobody wants to be a nun anymore, unfortunately, because I'm just dying to be one. But <laughs> it's sort of hard to be a nun these days. <laughs> but they were all ancient, ancient, with you know humps on their back and sewing, and they had all these women hiding in the basement. And I said, so what are you going to do if these men show up with their machine guns? And they said, well, we'll just, we will face them, you know. So then I, and then I heard about the holes, and the holes was the image that just grabbed me, you know, wouldn't let go. What did you get from the, the, the sort of overwhelming kind of, if there was such a thing from the stories that they told you? Was that kind of one thing that came out? Yeah, actually. Um, I would say that in the jail, 95% are of the women there are there because of a man. And 5% are there because they're bad women. Mm-hmm. But there were, I mean, I, there was one woman who took the rap for her father. Her father had killed a man, and she said that she had killed him. And I said, but your life? She goes, no, but my father, he wouldn't survive in jail, and, you know, he couldn't be in jail, you know. They, they really develop families. It's a very loving environment, unlike the men's jail that's very violent and scary. And to the point that if somebody's leaving, you never know when you're leaving, and they come and take you at 2 in the morning because the pain is so great if somebody leaves that everybody's so upset. And also, not only are they upset, but they will do something so you can't leave, or you yourself will do something so you can't leave. So you yourself will put a knife in your bed, or your friend will put a knife in your bed. And I was there once when somebody was taken at 2 in the morning, and it was, I mean, 
it was a place of total grief. I mean, everybody was so upset. And for a lot of these women, their life is better in jail mm -hmm. than outside. And they don't want to leave and they want to stay. So they, often they'll leave and do everything they can to come back. And one of the things that was very moving that I do show in the book, and actually there's only one person in the book that's based on a real person, and that's the collage teacher. And he hasn't read the book yet. I think he'll, he'll like himself. <laughs> but um, but it, I found it very moving because I don't think, I think most of them hadn't met sort of a gentleman, a man who cared about them. He always took them ice cream that was totally melted, you know, that they'd have to drink. Um, and I don't think, you know, a lot of them hadn't met a man like that. So... He sort of has a harem, and he's actually had affairs with tons of them, you know? <laughs> I didn't put that in the book, but he has. <laughs> you can have conjugal visits also in Mexico's jails. But that's another story. You got through all that. <laughs> yeah. To what extent, I mean, the, the way you describe it, you know, the hidden women possibly multiplying in the backs of shops, you, you know... How, to what extent can you live in Mexico and be unaware of, of that? Uh, I don't think that you can live in Mexico and be unaware of that. I mean, we just... Uh, but, the, but the problem is, as in many, many parts of the world, is that, that women aren't very valuable. And so they're not given much attention. We just had such a, a recent tremendous case where a drug trafficker was killed in the north of Mexico and his body was taken to a morgue it's really not a morgue because it was in this sort of lost town. It was sort of like a government room, really. And it probably didn't have refrigeration or anything. And he, his body was placed on, on some table there. And at midnight came, I don't know, something like seven SUVs full of men with machine guns, and they stole the corpse. And, in fact, to get the DNA and everything, they had to exhume this drug lord's parents from this incredible, because the cemeteries that they build for themselves are just, like, beyond belief. That's a whole other story. I could go, <laughs> And in the middle of all this noise and sending the parents' DNA to the United States, to the FBI, and da-da-da-da-da, there was just this lone voice of this mother saying, he stole my daughter. He stole my daughter. But nobody cares. In the um, community that you describe, which is a, basically a rural community, but, but near the city, you know, it's less than an hour away mm -hmm. from Acapulco. I mean, the, the kind of um, the image that comes across is of these little girls, very young girls, who go away and never come back. But in your book, one does come back, which actually yields an extraordinary scene where, you know, Lady D starts to kind of to talk to her and to hear some of her stories. How did that sort of, how did that part of the, the novel kind of come about? Gosh, I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> you had the... I guess, you know, intuitively, because it's sort of happening there more than like a conscious intellectual thought, um, I, I needed to know what had happened to her, where she had been, what was that like, where she was taken. So that was important to me. And then... Yeah, I guess it was just to be able to explain what happened. I wanted to talk about the ranch, uh, what that ranch was like, which is based on a real ranch. Um, and, you know, 
the, the whole thing of the wild animals and how they pack the drugs with the excrement of lions and tigers and things like that so that the, the border dogs can't, are frightened of the, of the shipment. They won't go near. So I wanted to get into that whole really intense world of the drug lords. And the only way to, for me to do that, I guess, as a device is to have her come back. Jennifer, thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for talking to us. Uh, and thank, thank you for writing the book. Thanks. Thank you. Acoustic engineer Trevor Cox's Sonic Wonderland is a book about his travels around the world in search of aural delights. He's been described as a David Attenborough for the acoustic realm. He's joined by Stuart Williams, his publisher at the Bodley Head, and they discuss echoes, musical roads, burping sand dunes, and how, dear listeners, to be better listeners. Hello, I'm Stuart Williams. I'm publishing director of the Bodley Head, and I'm joined by mm. Trevor Cox, the author of Sonic Wonderland, a scientific odyssey of sound. Trevor, in the book, you go hunting for the sonic wonders of the world. Why don't you start by telling us how you got into acoustics? Well, I, I suppose I was a musician as a, as a child, and I was also good at science, so I went off and did a physics degree, and then at some point I kind of thought, well, I'd like to combine my interests, so I, I went and studied acoustics, and I did a doctorate all to do with designs of performance spaces and concert halls and places like that. So that's how I got into to sound as a career. And why on earth would you try to capture the story of wonderful sounds in a book? Well, a lot of things in acoustic engineering are quite kind of negative. It's all about the noise and how terribly noisy the world is. And I wanted to do something which would celebrate sound because there's so many things that are, you know, joyous about sound. And we're used to that in music, but maybe not in the everyday sounds or the sort of the strange sounds in the world. And so I, I wanted to make a book about celebrating, celebrating the oral world. And so you mentioned that a lot of your professional life has been spent dealing with man-made sounds or sound problems was there an urge to get out of the lab and into the wide wide world well the funny thing about being an acoustic engineer is you can do an awful lot of it without really listening just it's all equations it's numbers it's prediction models it's measurements and actually it's been a real delight to have an excuse to go out and do lots of recording because I don't often you know in my day-to-day -day life get to do that and actually do listening so in a sense it's been a reawakening for me to sort of kind of remember this sort of art of listening which I kind of forgotten as I got buried more and more into equations in my normal day job. A lot of the noises that you're talking about originate in the natural world. Um, you quote a few beautiful lines from Thomas Hardy about the distinct noises that different types of tree make. Do you think of that natural world as a noisy or a noise-rich environment? I think it's a sound rich. I mean, it depends how you want to define noise, but you know, some people that's unwanted and nasty stuff. So I'd say it's a sound rich world. And the thing about the book, which I've found, is by writing, I'm listening much more often. So I'm noticing the sounds of these the whistling trees in a way that Hardy, obviously, as a, as a great author, does naturally. But me is I wasn't doing it before, and it's kind of really, really awakened me to listen out for things like that. You talk about that idea of celebration. Um, are there any do's and don'ts that you can suggest so that listeners to this can start listening to the world around them better? I think it's it's actually relatively simple to sort of get in, you know, to, to listen to your world. We, we spend all our time doing quite sophisticated listening. Speech and music are quite complicated things our brain has to deal with. So there's nothing really complicated we have to do. We just have to listen. We have to spend a bit of time instead of plugging our MP3 player as we walk through the city, just take it out and just listen in silence to what's going on around you. And you'll be amazed at what you hear. 
Is it to do with that idea of mindfulness of being sort of present in the moment and in the environment you're in yeah I th- there's also an acoustic basis of this you know the way that our brains process sounds we spend our time trying to sort of listen out for things that are changing so our brain has this kind of great way of actually sort of taking away sound i mean i don't know if you've turned i don't know the, c- the computer off at the end of the day and you hear the fan go away you've not noticed that that fan's been going all day but you notice when it stops and that's because our, our hearing is listening out for changes like a lot of our senses it's looking out for changes which might be for example danger so it's only really about paying attention. So we've got the hearing to do it. It's a question of making sure our brain doesn't sort of kind of ignore things, but actually pays attention to it. Okay, so you've got the, the amazing um, variety and strangeness of sounds in the book, but you're talking also about the, the absence of sound. One of the things that you've come up with is the most tranquil spot in the United Kingdom. Where is it and how do we find it? Well, this was actually something that the campaign for Royal England sort of identified a few years ago, but they were a bit coy about saying exactly where it was. I mean, campaign for Royal England were campaigning about tranquility because it's one of the most important things you have when you go into the countryside is to have a bit of peace and quiet. You want to hear nature, you don't want to hear roads, you don't want to hear aircraft. And so they did a mapping. They worked out how tranquil different places were by looking at things like on maps. And, you know, could you see man-made structures? Could you hear roads from this place by predicting the noise levels? And they found a place up in Northumberland, uh, near Kilda Forest, that is, uh, this is the sort of absolutely the, the quietest point in England, according to their kind of mapping. Uh, it's quite difficult to get to uh, because, of course, it's away from roads. So it's not, it's not easy to go, to go there. You have to, I, I actually cycled, well, I took a train, I cycled, I mountain biked and I walked. So that's how I got there in the end. That was the most efficient way of getting there. <laughs> most people don't know what it's like to have a total absence of sound. And I think in your lab, that's something you can simulate. Can you tell us what it's like, what it does to the body, to the mind? Yeah, the, the anechoic chamber at Salford is, is this room where when you're closed off, there is no sound anymore going down your ear canals. You literally, all you can hear is the sounds that you, you yourself make. And people are surprised that they hear sounds like the blood moving in their head, or they might hear uh, their auditory nerve firings on their auditory nerve a bit hissing. It's not very good if you've got tinnitus. You can hear tinnitus as well very well in that, in that space. So the, one of the surprises is there isn't really a true silence in, in, in the place. The other surprise of that space is the walls are covered in these sort of wedges which absorb all the sound. You've got all these foam wedges. So when you talk, your voice sounds really muffled. And your eyes can see the walls, but your ears can't hear them. And that sort of, you know, the, the sense is not being together can make feel, people feel quite un, unnerved, especially if it's a bit claustrophobic and some people ask to leave. On your sonic quest, you go to a lot of extraordinary places, to Venezuela, to Iceland, Russia and beyond. Can you give us your top three favourite, strangest sonic wonders that you found in the course of writing this book? Well, that's, 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 it's almost impossible to pick, but I, I, I enjoyed going to see, uh, I did a re- great road trip to America, so maybe I'll pick three in America, because I went three very contrasting ones. I went and heard a, an organ made of stalactites, which was quite a sort of amazing feat of engineering, and then I, I went from there to uh, across to California, and I heard booming sand dunes, which are this phenomenon that people like uh, Marco Polo wrote about, these sand dunes which drone a bit like a prop aircraft, so I, did, I went to the desert then, and from there, I, nearby, there's a musical road, a road which plays tunes as you drive over it, so those are, those are three high that's for my American trip anyway. See, some of those sound like um, natural sonic installations. We get a lot of public uh, visual art in our world. Do you think there's scope and space for more sonic art? Is that something we should be looking at? 
We're seeing, I think we're seeing more and more sonic art. It's become more a medium that people want to work with. So artists are using sound. There's very few pure sound artists. Most of them are do a, a sound piece, but they do other stuff, you know, painting or sculpture or, or installation. I think we will see more public sound art, but it probably needs to mature a bit more. But there's also, there is issues about annoying other people so the musical road is great in california but the first incarnation had to be moved because it disturbed everyone who was nearby so it's great fun to drive along it and hear william tell overture badly played it's not much fun if you're nearby trying to get to sleep so there has to be some sort of quite clever sort of sighting if you're going to make sound art work in the public okay and finally the the last thing i wanted to ask you about is the one thing that every book should have which is a world record uh, attached to it there's one uh, with Sonic Wonderland it's the world record for the longest echo do you want to tell us that story I went to the the old world record holder which was near near Glasgow and Hamilton Moore's Lim, and I was there with some acoustics people and we thought well this isn't actually very reverberant I mean it was echoey but we thought God, we know places probably more reverberant than this and it got me thinking about where else there might be so knowing this physics you what you need to do is find a very big place where there's very little absorption so there's, there's nothing inside it the walls are very thick and hard there's no windows there's nothing else in the place and I, I sort of started scouting around and talking to different people and people from subterranean britannica suggested that i should find this oil depot up in the very top of scotland uh in Inchendown, which we used to hold the oil from World War II, uh, which was which was servicing the uh, ships in Cromarty Firth. So it was buried into the side of a hill to protect it from German bombing in the 1930s. And it really is this underground layer, which is really hidden, no one knows much about, made out of half a metre thick concrete. And it is just a vast space where the sound, if you, you know, if I was to go and play a tuba in there, I didn't, the sound would last a couple of minutes before it died away. And uh, now you've found the sonic wonders of the world, what do you do next? Well, I'm, I'm moving on to a research project now looking at what, what, what we listen to in the home. There's a big challenge at the moment that we've got great sound in cinemas, but actually at home we're still listening in quite old-fashioned stereo with our very good high-definition high visuals. So I've got a big research project I'm working on just starting, which is all about what the future of audio in the home is. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Our thanks for listening and do join us again next month for more interviews and discussions with your favourite authors. And don't forget, if you've missed any of our podcasts or would like to listen again, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud and at vintage-books.co.uk.